But now we pray that you'd help us. As we have read your word and heard you speak, you help us now to reflect, to understand, uh, to be comforted and to be challenged by it. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. What are the things that get in the way of you doing the things that you want to do? Uh, What are the things that stop you from doing the things you think you need to do? Uh, The other day, Sarah and I were getting ready for a wedding. Uh, I was doing the wedding. I was marrying the couple. And so we had to be there on time. Uh, We had everything organized. We had the clothes. We had the present. We had the babysitters. We were ahead of schedule in the day. It was great. Uh, But then just as we were saying goodbye to the kids and trying to get into the car, Harley, who's almost four, she smacks her head on something really hard. And so she's screaming and crying. And we're trying to comfort her so we can say goodbye and get out of the door. Uh, But poor kid, she's so upset, she's so worked up that she starts coughing and gagging and then she vomits all over us. Uh, All over Sarah, I should say. It's always the mum who gets vomited on. Uh, And so we're delayed as we clean up this mess and try to help her. Uh, We did get there in the end. The couple did get married, Um, but it was a close call. Uh, What are the things that get in the way of your day? Have you experienced what I've experienced? Uh, there are so many things, aren't there, that try to stop us, that's just things that come up that mean we can't do the things we know we should be doing or the things that we want to do. Well, let's think about what we've seen in, so far in the book of Acts because we've seen things that could, that might possibly get in the way for those early Christians. We've been seeing this kind of slow increase of persecution in the early church. Persecution and fear. I think back to two weeks ago, we saw the start of that persecution against Christians. Peter and John, the apostles, they were put into prison overnight for healing and for preaching. And they were brought before the Jewish court, the Sanhedrin. And they said, stop teaching in the name of Jesus. And they made threats to silence Peter and John. So from outside the church, persecution, it starts in those chapters two weeks ago we saw. But then inside the church, fear increases. Uh, There's just this kind of hint that some of the Christians are not willing to stand with the apostles. They're afraid. But there's also a right fear of God that you see in these chapters. As people understand the gospel, they're in awe that God is merciful towards them, though they are undeserving. And remember last week, they also fear God because he's holy, and he wants his church to be holy, and so God, remember, struck down Ananias and Sapphira dead for their greed and deception. Fear was the right response, fear of God. But despite the persecution and the fear, will the disciples keep praying and keep proclaiming Jesus? The persecution, the fear, they do not stop the church from praying and from sharing Jesus. So what did Peter say? This is kind of looking at some of the verses we've seen over the last few weeks. What did Peter say to the court who killed Jesus. Look at these verses. We've already seen these. Peter says, We are unable to stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. Proclamation. Later, the church uh, prays this. They all raise their voices to God and they say, Lord, consider their threats. Grant that your slaves may speak your message with complete boldness. Prayer about proclamation. And so the apostles were giving testimony with great power to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. They kept proclaiming. And believers were added to the Lord in increasing numbers, both crowds of men 
and women. See, the persecution, the fear, it does not stop them praying. It doesn't stop them proclaiming Jesus. It doesn't stop the gospel. And that's what we see all through the book of Acts. I hope you started to see that picture build and you'll continue to see it. The gospel, the good news of Jesus, his death and resurrection, that he alone is Savior and Lord. Nothing can stop that gospel from spreading and from saving all whom God has called. And this is what we see today in our passage tonight as well. So come with me. We're going to look at these chapters and see that the gospel is unstoppable in two ways. Up against two things that threaten the word of God from going forward. So the first thing we see is that the gospel is unstoppable in the face of persecution. So we're going to pick up the story. Chapter 5, verse 17. We read it before. The persecution starts to ramp up again. Look at verse 17. It starts with an ominous tone. Then the high priest took action or rose up. This is the high priest, the top dog in all of Israel. He and all his colleagues, his fellow priests with him, he's in charge, they're within the Jewish leaders. They're filled with jealousy, it says. They feel threatened by the apostles. They're fed up with this Jesus movement. And so verse 18 They take the 12 apostles, so it's not just Peter and John this time, it's all 12, and they put them in jail overnight. And the Jewish leaders, they're showing their power and their prowess at this time, but their power and their prowess runs out very, very quickly. Because look at verse 19, God decides to make the Jewish leaders look silly. An angel of the Lord opened the doors of the jail during the night, brought them, the apostles, out and said... Go and stand in the temple complex and tell the people all about this life. The angel puts it really beautifully, doesn't he? Tell the people all about this life, this true life, spiritual life, eternal life that is found in Jesus, the Savior, the Lord. And so that's what they do. At daybreak, they go into the temple, teach about Jesus. They do exactly what the high priest put them in jail for. Well, they're now out and preaching in the temple. The gospel is unstoppable. And this is the beginning of kind of like a taunt against the Jewish religious leaders. This is meant to be funny. As I wonder if you found any of it funny. Look down at verse 21, uh, all the way down to 25. If you scan your eyes over those verses, look at the funny things that happen and the way that it's put. So all the priests and the leaders that they gather as the full court, the full Sanhedrin, no one is missing. All the men are there with their grandeur and pomp. And they say, all right, we're ready. Bring in those pesky apostles. We'll show them who's boss. And as they're kind of waiting, they they think, it's taken a little while. Man, what's happening? And then a jailer turns up and says, Ah, look, we went to get them, but the doors were locked, the guards were in place, but the cell was empty. And so they're baffled. What do you mean? Where where are they? And then someone arrives and says, Um, we we found them. They're, They're in the temple teaching about Jesus. You see, you see what's happening here? God is mocking these men. God is humiliating them. The other week, our Old Testament reading was Psalm 2. Do you remember what Psalm 2 says? It says, God laughs. God ridicules those who oppose him and oppose his Messiah. 
Do you really think you can oppose my king, he says? This is God doing what he says throughout the scriptures, putting the so-called wise and powerful to shame. Listen to what God says in Jeremiah. This is God speaking about the corrupt Jewish leaders of Jeremiah's day, and it's the same for the leaders here in Acts. It says, The wise will be put to shame, and they will be dismayed and snared. They have rejected the word of the Lord, so what wisdom do they really have? Well, listen to how Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians. He says, God has chosen what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen what is weak in the world to shame the strong. See, God uses the message of a crucified Messiah preached by uneducated nobodies, the apostles. And he does that to bring low the wise, to humiliate these Jewish leaders in their pride. Just remember... When those who are seen as wise and strong in our world, when they attack us, when they attack the Bible, when they attack Christians, don't be afraid. God will humble. God will bring low. God will shame those who are apparently wise, who look powerful, but aren't. So now the apostles, well, they're finally brought before the trial, the Sanhedrin. The court is now ready to begin and again the apostles they're faced with this daunting situation and so you have to imagine it there's probably 70 or more elders all around them in this court maybe more than that and the high priest well he begins to question them with all those eyes peering at them look at verse 28 high priest says didn't we strictly order you not to teach in the name of jesus And look, you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and are determined to bring this man's blood on us. The high priest doesn't think so, but he says something really beautiful there. He says they have filled Jerusalem with teaching about Jesus. The gospel has flourished. It can't be stopped. But you can also see what he's afraid of. See, the high priest is afraid that they will bring Jesus' blood on them. He's afraid that the world will blame them the Jewish leaders, for the death of Jesus. Because Peter, he's already said things like, we've, we've read them before, you crucified Jesus. You used lawless men to nail him to a cross. You killed the source of life. These are the things that Peter is saying around the town. The irony is that they, the, the Jewish leaders themselves, the mob that they stirred up against Jesus, they claimed that Jesus' blood was on their heads. They said they were responsible. Do you remember this? Look at this, Matthew 27. Pontius Pilate says, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And all the people answered, His blood be on us and on our children. That is a dark, dark moment, isn't it? The Jewish people, the Jewish leaders, they are responsible for the death of Jesus. They claimed it. And so, back in Acts... Well, Peter answers the high priest's question with complete boldness yet again. And of course, he answers them with the gospel. So look at verse 29. This is Peter's wonderful response. We're going to take the time to read it. Verse 29, he says, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you had murdered by hanging him on a tree. God exalted this man to his right hand as ruler and saviour 
to grant repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. We are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. You know, not only does Peter answer their question, yes, you are responsible for Jesus' death. No, we will not stop speaking. But the good news he shares as well, the good news, the confronting news, is that Jesus is risen from the dead. God has seated him in heaven with all authority as Lord and Savior. And through him, God offers the chance to repent of your sin and be forgiven of your rebellion against him. It's wonderful. It's beautiful. He answers their question and then just hammers them with the gospel. And so this persecution, this Sanhedrin of powerful men, yet again, they cannot stop Peter boldly preaching the gospel. And so the Jewish leaders, well, they need to respond. Will they respond to the fact that Jesus is the exalted Lord? Will it be good news for them or will it be bad news for them? That's the important thing to realize. They kept on preaching, Jesus is risen, exalted, he is Lord, and therefore he is judge. And so how you respond to him depends on whether that is good news or bad news. The good news of Jesus is only good news if you respond to it rightly. Jesus is only your saviour. You are only forgiven of your sin if you repent, acknowledge your sin, acknowledge that Jesus is Lord, turn and obey God. If you don't do that, then Jesus is the exalted Lord who is returning to judge and to judge you for your sin. And so if that is you, we want to plead with you. The book of Acts demands that you think about that. If you haven't repented of your sin and turned to Jesus, don't let this moment, don't let these words pass you by. Now is the time that God offers you to repent. Now is the time that the wonderful gift of forgiveness is there for the taking. Don't wait until it's too late. Don't wait until the exalted Lord of all comes as judge. Turn to him now and know forgiveness. But how does the Sanhedrin respond to Peter's bold words? Well, again, the persecution steps up. Look at verse 33. This is how hard their hearts are towards Jesus and God's word. When they heard this, they were enraged and they wanted to kill them. That's how, that's how indignant they are. That's how threatened they are. That's how hard their hearts are. They want blood for these words that they're speaking. But God, in his plan and in his kindness, he doesn't let it happen at this time. Because a Pharisee, Gamaliel, rises up to refute this. Now, Gamaliel, he's this hugely respected rabbi. Gamaliel is written about in historical documents outside the Bible. And he was the Apostle Paul's rabbi who trained him to be a Pharisee. So Gamaliel, he's this huge respected guy. And he's a bit more diplomatic in his approach. He says, look guys, other men have risen up and gained a following. And then they die. And then the following disperses. Let's not kill these men and cause ourselves trouble. Let's just see how it pans out. Very diplomatic. And he has some good wisdom, doesn't he, old Gamaliel? Uh, He says, look at verse 38. He says, if the Jesus movement, if that's from men, well, it will die away like the others did. But if it's from God, you won't be able to stop it. 
you might find yourself fighting against God. And Gamaliel is right. Kind of. Yes, it's true, isn't it, that if God plans something, humans can't stop it. And it's true that for 2,000 years, the good news of Jesus Christ has gone out from Jerusalem, here in Acts, to the ends of the earth. The Jesus movement did not die away. It just keeps going. It just keeps being shared. It is unstoppable. It keeps growing and flourishing, drawing more and more people to salvation in Jesus. But what Gamaliel should have done is read his Bible better and made a call about who he actually thought Jesus was and if these apostles were actually telling the truth or not. He should have weighed up the words and the life of Jesus against his Old Testament and then made a decision. But instead he goes, let's just see how it pans out. We should do that when we shouldn't do that. We should look at God's word when we're faced with a teaching or an, or an experience that we're not sure about. Weigh it against the revealed word of God. Everything we have, everything we need is here. We have it. But amazingly, God uses this semi wisdom, and the Sanhedrin listens to Gamaliel. They let the apostles go, but not before ramping up the persecution again. Because for the first time since Jesus, the persecution gets physical. The Jewish leaders, they try to rule with fear. And so they have the twelve flogged with whips, 39 times each, across their backs. It would have been awful and and bloody and and gut-wrenchingly painful. But look at the, the response of the apostles. If you've switched off, now is the time to switch back in. Look at in your Bible at verse 41. See this for yourself. Do you believe that this could happen? Then they, the twelve, went out from the presence of the Sanhedrin, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to be dishonored on, the name, on behalf of the name, the name of Jesus. What's your gut reaction to that? If you were to have your back whipped open 39 times, unjustly, without any legitimate charge against you, for no reason other than that you follow Jesus and you speak about him, how would you respond? Like this? Would you rejoice in the privilege of suffering and being shamed for the sake of Jesus? Have you heard the similar stories of Christian across the, Christians across the ages who have sung hymns to God while imprisoned? or sung hymns while they're being executed for their faith. Would you rejoice like that? I can only hope and pray that I would. But the twelve, they're actually just doing exactly what their Lord and Saviour said they should do. In our gospel teams, our small groups in the week, we're reading Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. What did Jesus say on this topic? What did we read just the other week? You are blessed when they insult you and persecute you and falsely say every kind of evil against you because of me. Be glad and rejoice because your reward is great in heaven. How can the twelve rejoice at being whipped? They understand their reward is in heaven. And that reward infinitely outweighs the pain of a flogging. They understand the privilege of knowing Jesus. 
their Lord and Savior and suffering like him and suffering for him. Do we understand that? Do we have the heart towards Jesus, that kind of heart towards Jesus and his gospel? I pray we do. I pray we are growing by the Spirit's help in that so that when, not if, when the day of persecution comes, maybe not whipping, but something, we can rejoice in the privilege when that day comes, the privilege of suffering for the one we love and who loves us. So we see the persecution increases, but does it stop the gospel? No. Nothing can stop God's gospel going out. You can't stop Jesus' people speaking about him. In fact, it fuels the fire. Because look at verse 42. Look there. It says, Every day in the temple complex, every day in various homes, they, the apostles, continued teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. They can't stop it. They just keep speaking. But then there's another threat that comes in our passage today. I wonder if you read it as a threat as you heard it read before. We're not going to spend as long here, but in chapter 6, those first seven verses that we read out before, it's not persecution from outside the church against the Christians that threatens to kind of stop the gospel and silence the believers No, it's distraction within the church that threatens to stop the gospel from going out. Because we have this another kind of short episode about an issue within, inside the church. Not persecution outside, but a problem within God's people. And you can go home, you can read it more at home. But the issue here is that some of the widows were being overlooked in the distribution of food for the needy. Life in the early church wasn't perfect. They, they still had sin and mistakes and human error and all of that. And so there's this problem that arises. There's this issue. And the apostles and the whole church, actually, they agree to a solution. If you look at chapter 6, verse 3, what do they do? They choose seven men. Seven men to serve, to administrate the food side of things, to make sure everyone gets what they should and that it's all fair. But the reason for this result, the reason for this plan is striking, maybe even surprising to you. What do, why do they get these seven men to do this? Yes, so that the widows are looked after. That's so important. They must do something about it. But look at verse 2. Look at the reason. The 12 say, it would not be right for us to give up preaching about God or literally to, to leave behind the word of God to handle financial or, or practical matters. And look at verse 4. These seven men, they'll sort out the food, but we apostles will devote ourselves to prayer and to the preaching ministry, or literally to the prayer and the ministry of the Word, the Word of God. And then it says, the proposal pleased the whole company, the whole church. So what's the reason for appointing these seven men? The reason is that the twelve should not be distracted from preaching and from praying, from prayer and proclamation, from being devoted to praying that God would send his gospel out and from praying for the church and their faith and then proclaiming the word of God to the believers and to those who needed to hear the gospel as well. And so what's the result of that? Well, Acts again shows us this wonderful picture. Verse 7. We're used to this kind of statement now, but let's not take it for granted. Verse 7. So, because they did this, because they appointed these seven men and didn't get distracted 
from prayer and proclamation, well, therefore, the preaching about God or the word of God flourished. The number of disciples in Jerusalem multiplied greatly and a large group of priests became obedient to the faith. Now, at first glance, that story, those seven verses, seems to be different from what we've just seen in the previous chapter with the Twelve and the Sanhedrin. But it's not a different story. It's part of the very same story continued. Because Luke, who who wrote the book of Acts, he was at pains to show that it was the gospel, the word of God, the teaching of truth that the church was concerned about, that the apostles were concerned about, that God is concerned about. See, the job of the church then and today, yes, it is to look after every believer. Yes, it is to care for the poor. But the job of the church is to proclaim Jesus and grow disciples. We can do and we can be involved in all sorts of activities to love people, to care for each other, to fight for the cause of justice or whatever it is. But at the end of the day, what do people need most? They need to know God. They need to know his word. They need saving from their sin. They need the gospel of Jesus. We need the word of God taught, fed to us. We need to understand it for ourselves and live it out. So ironically, persecution, as we think it might, doesn't, it doesn't get in the way of the spread of the gospel. But church politics can. Church politics do sadly get in the way. But not here, because we have a church who didn't let that happen. They did the right thing. They looked after their widows. They made sure the right thing was done. They were diligent. They didn't cut corners, but they knew that the main game was praying and proclaiming Jesus, growing disciples to be mature in him. Prayer and the ministry of the word had to come first, has to come first even today. How else will people hear and be saved? How else will God's people be built up? So don't let your church, whether it's this church now or any church you're a part of in the future, don't let your church stop praying and proclaiming the word, preaching the gospel. You have a part to play in this. Whatever church we might be involved in or invested in now or into the future, whatever church you might happen to be part of, make sure that church doesn't put anything above praying and preaching the good news of Jesus. Encourage your ministers and pastors in this. Those who have been set aside to do this job, encourage and support them. Make their job easy, not hard. Work hard at those practical things that need to happen as part of our church life so that those who preach the word can preach the word. I'm so thankful for our church. I'll get to that in a second, actually. But also, it doesn't mean that it's just the people who are paid. It's just the ministers. It's also all of us taking every opportunity we can to speak the truth of the gospel in love, isn't it? It was the church as a whole who made sure that these things were happening. It's what we do as a church. It's what we exist for, to declare the praises of him who called us out of darkness and into his wonderful light. Each one of us has a way to do that and an opportunity and a role to play. In the 11 years that I've been part of Snack, I'm so thankful to God that our ministry team has always been on about teaching the word of God first. I'm thankful, and you should be thankful too, for the leadership of Phil, our senior minister. 
God has gifted him with a clear mind to keep this, the preaching of God's word, the teaching of God's word, the discipling of people at the top of the list, at the center of who we are and what we do as a church. Our congregations, not just our leaders, our congregations as well, have never stopped encouraging and supporting that, ensuring that, praying for that, giving towards that, encouraging us as ministers. We are thankful for that. Our congregations have been places where also the word of truth is spoken to one another. And we welcome the newcomer that they too might know about this life that we have in Jesus. Praise God for all that. But that means we have a responsibility. We have the joy to continue that work, keeping the word at the center. But to wrap it up, at the end of the day, these verses are showing, these chapters are showing, the gospel is unstoppable. Why? Because God makes sure of it. Because for 2,000 years, the gospel has not stopped in the face of persecution, not even in the face of distraction. Praise God that he keeps sending out his word through the mouths of his people and bringing salvation and life to all those who repent and believe. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we praise you for the life-giving news of Jesus. And we praise you that we see in this early example of the church a faithful and good example of keeping your word at the center, of making sure prayer and proclaiming Jesus and growing disciples was what they as a church were on about. And Father, we pray that as we see in coming weeks the wonderful joy that it wasn't just the apostles, uh, but many others who shared your word. We pray that you would embolden us to do all we can so that we can keep proclaiming Jesus to our world around us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.